Hello and welcome to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, episode 154. As always, folks, please follow at LAFCS2S on all your social media platforms and reach out to us if you'd like to be a guest on the show. Today, we have an epic lineup for you today. The get of all gets, the guest of all guests, none other than Rich Orozco, LAFC Rich, the chief brand officer for the Black and Gold, will be joining us as our guest this week. As our opponent correspondent, soccer royalty himself, Tim Sullivan, you know him from Club and Country covering Nashville SC, and of course, the president of the North American Soccer Reporters. As always, my name is Jonathan Reimer, and we are joined today by the full squad of Christian Aparicio and Christopher Sines. Gentlemen, good evening and welcome. Let's go, Black and Gold family. We're back for another week, another victory, a very, very important, historic victory, and I'm loving life. Made it back in time to experience this from LA, not in the stadium, unfortunately, but I was able to be here and bask in the joy of this week. Two victories this week to talk about. Two, count them, one, two, two, two. We have a massive, massive win down at Dignity Health Sports Park in Carson, California to talk about. But since last recording, gentlemen, not to get too far in front of ourselves, the Los Angeles Football Club defeated the Vancouver Whitecaps three to nothing in the second leg of the Conca Champions Clash, the quarterfinals, aggregate score of six to nothing an absolute spanking of our foes in vancouver carlos vela a pair of first half goals rallying three goals now in the champions league campaign so far sifu finds himself a golazo to put us up three nothing we are now on to face philadelphia in those semifinals coming up 426 in philly and 5-2 at the Mo, Gentlemen, your reflections on a drubbing of the Vancouver Whitecaps in the CCL. It was a little less than entertaining, right? Like, we had already had a significant lead from the away leg in the very first leg. We came back, and the home leg was pretty much a repeat. However, I will take those victories all day long. I'm not complaining about the lack of action. I'm just simply saying... When you're looking at it, yellow card for me. Oh, yellow uh, card for saying it was not exciting. We scored three goals and won three nothing. I'm sorry, sir. That's a caution. You're in the book. No, it it was. It's just you would hope that a team that has made it that far that, you know, it's like, I don't know. I was more excited by the Philadelphia Atlas game than I was about the Vancouver LAFC game. But uh, no, it was cool. I caught the last 20 minutes. I was at my son's practice in L.A. and we're like a mile and a half from the bank and we got out of practice at 8:20 and uh we drove over to the bank we we caught the last few minutes you know watched the game until it ended at like 9:10 and then we left i mean i feel like that's how many minutes Vancouver played turf or grass it doesn't matter i think they had a good 20 minutes and LAFC's head and shoulders above them in terms of how effective we are in front of goal one two i don't think they really belonged in this competition i'm sorry for whoever is a vancouver fan but i'd say they're not in the top class in Concacaf. so hopefully canada has a better representation next year as expected lafc goes and i'm more excited about the next round and you know bring it on to philly philly showed you know some character down in atlas but they still have a boogeyman where they lose you know on the way to finals or in the finals. So now it's a rematch. And can they get over the fact that they lost to us? We'll see. I have to say I'm a little disappointed. I was hoping that we were all going to head down to Guadalajara and go see Atlas. But such as it is, I think what would have probably been a thousand LAFC fans 
in the desert there in Mexico is is probably only going to be, I don't know, maybe 100 LAFC fans that are willing to make the trek out to Philadelphia. So just from an optic standpoint, it would have been so much more fun to be in Mexico. It is no joke. Way ridiculously expensive to get to Philadelphia from L.A. Like, it's cheaper to fly to New York and take the train from New York and go into Philadelphia than it is to fly into Philadelphia. And tickets to Guadalajara, Mexico, you could get for like 100 bucks, And for 200 bucks, you could stay in a nice hotel the whole time you were down there. It's definitely a massive monetary difference in investment going down to Guadalajara versus going over to Philadelphia. But looking forward to that matchup. We'll have more on that as it comes. Gentlemen, let's talk about the biggest game of the season so far. The last hurdle LAFC had to overcome here in Major League Soccer. The last thing anyone could hold over our head was you haven't won away at Dignity Health Sports Park. Well, Chris, as you like to say, the monkey on our back, finally, finally gone. The Los Angeles Football Club have defeated the Galaxy 3-2. to two at Dignity Health Sports Park. This is the moment where if we had a soundboard, we would be hitting that applause button on our soundboard. Vela put us up one nothing. They tied it back up 1-1 with a golasso right before the half. We came out, stomped on them in the second half with two great goals, a PK from Vela, Hollingshead with an awesome birthday header to put us ahead 3-1. They got a garbage goal back late and had some good looks once they switched to that 3-5-2. But them on their best, and let's be honest, this is the best the Galaxy has played all season. Them at their best could not beat an exhausted LAFC team that had just played five matches in the span of two weeks. And yet we still were able to go on the road and put three goals in in their stadium, which was absolutely taken over by LAFC fans. It was a beautiful thing to witness. So let's go ahead and break this game down, gentlemen. But first, I'd like just your big picture reactions to the first win down in Carson. You know, again, second game, showing up late. My son had a game in Wilmington, got out of the game at uh, 2 o'clock, so drove over, missed about the first 20 minutes before kickoff. But it was an atmosphere that was such a beautiful sight to see. You walk in there, and it's just black and black and black and black and there's just crowds and crowds of black you just see all of these galaxy like patches right and you know to see that stadium especially when the 3252 and the extension because you know the the supporter section was only like two sections over but you can definitely see that there was like trickle effect of people trying to get as close as they could to the 3252 in the in the second tier and you just see the jump rally football club in the terraces and they're just going one way and then going the other way and and then you see it on the lower field level and it's i mean i was over in the south end right behind the goal with my two sons and a buddy of mine and his son. And I mean, just to see it, the atmosphere, there was LAFC fans everywhere. I loved it, bro. We took over that stadium and we took advantage of the situation that was going on there and we made it our own. You mean BMO South? Is that what you meant? Because that's what it felt like, at least watching it on TV. It was kind of ridiculous. And the chance you can hear them anyway when we play there, but this was much more clear because every now and then in the past, their supporter section, you would be able to hear some of their chants, but not this past weekend. And I think you put it best. At their best, couldn't beat our exhausted legs. At the end of the match, like Buanga was struggling. And a lot of our players were. And we played five at the back just to close it out. But I think they looked good in the last 15, 20 minutes because 
of our exhaustion and we could have put it away. You know, Poku had a glorious chance and I don't know how we missed that. It should have been over at that point in time. We, LAFC now are mature. They're able to absorb pressure. I think they know how to play within their strengths and wait for the other team's mistakes. We're not just pedal to the metal like we used to be. We're more of that team that can evaluate, can really scout the other team and just expose them. And despite being able to play all those games, we're still undefeated, right? The only team we played and lost to is a team that's not even in the league, which is kind of crazy. So I don't know how we're doing this. I don't know how we're not, as a team, usually there's a hangover that people say or that people in the league struggle because of the TCL. These are things that are just not happening to LAFC. And I think the club, coaching staff, Steve Chirondolo, the buy-in from the players has been absolutely outstanding to be able to just be true professionals and continue to get results. I'm going to be honest, definitely a little uncomfortable though. After Puj had that hit off of the post in the 81st, then there was the garbage goal, you know, and just a few minutes later, like from the 84th minute, until the eight ridiculous minutes of stoppage time for those 14 minutes, they were pressing LAFC was looking tired. It was definitely uncomfortable in those moments. However, I do have to say our friend EJ Mendelin made a very good point. He said the thing that he loved that also bothered him the most was that he gave them hope. We gave the Galaxy fans hope that they could come back and do it, and they didn't. And that, by far, was the best part. Yeah, it, it definitely got a little nervy there at the end. Uh, Pooj hits the post. I think it was one minute later when Chicharito was in on goal and J-Mac had a save arguably as great as any of his penalty saves in the finals. I think that will be on his highlight reel for the rest of his life and well-earned a massive stop against Chicharito there. A game that Opoku was one touch away from sealing suddenly became a game in which was very nervy. I don't think there's a single person who could say that they had absolute confidence in those last 15 minutes as a clearly gassed LAFC team was getting peppered by a Galaxy team who's playing for not just themselves, not their fans, which were waiting outside, but we're playing for their very relevancy within this league and within this city, something that is slipping from them. Their supporters still in protest, though I have to say after halftime, that supporter section looked a lot more full than it did about 20, 30 minutes into that match. So clearly some of those guys that were hanging around at halftime saw that it was a match, but uh, never heard any chance from any of them. Didn't hear peep from the Galaxy fans uh, until they scored a goal and then the stadium would erupt for a moment and then it would go back to the wine and cheese crowd that we had for the rest of it. But uh, I was there with the 3252s, buses, cages, and all singing my lungs out. I'm a little raspy today as a result, but it's worth every ache and pain I have throughout my body today for the 90 plus minutes that we gave yesterday and, and the whole experience of once again, being caged up and having to go through that whole process there in Carson when there weren't any of their fans uh, in order for there to be drama. I think it's very telling that without the Galaxy supporters groups in the buildings, the only fight that was recorded in this game was Galaxy on Galaxy. The only fight that happened were their fans fighting each other. There was not a single incident or altercation 
between LAFC fans and Galaxy fans. And I think that's a very telling thing to take out of this match as well, too. But uh, just a grit, a grit and determination win. There's some other things about this match I wanted to talk about. And uh, once again, I think Sifu was on the topic of virtually everyone's mind when we were talking post-game. Sifu had one of those mixed bag of results where he really had a very, very rough game. Most of what he was trying to do just didn't seem to translate to the other players that were out there on the pitch. However, it is Sifu picking off a throw from none other than Raheem Edwards into the box that causes Mavinga to create that penalty, which gives LAFC the lead, which they never surrendered. And of course, it's Sifu's shot that gets deflected out to Vela in order for him to put the first goal of the game in. Uh, so two of his his best touches on the night might not have been the most clinical of touches, but he certainly put a stamp on the game. We won the game because of Seafood's effort in those moments. But there were definitely other times throughout the game in which he did not look like the player he's been the past couple seasons. So despite it working out today, gentlemen, are we once again concerned about what is going on with Jose Cifuentes? I think this is just a recovery, a throwback, as it were, from last week. There's probably something going on. A player doesn't just, all of a sudden, not, they don't just stop being who they are. Something I think has to be going on. Maybe he's working through something, but, you know, and and who knows, right? When Diego Rossi was looking to, to make a move, there was a little bit of his play was becoming in question. You know, and, and the same thing with Brian Rodriguez, right? Like when players are looking to make moves, you know, the club then potentially makes a move to get the distraction out of the clubhouse. I'm not saying that he's being a distraction necessarily. I'm just trying to speculate on what could be. Yeah, I don't think he's a distraction. He might be distracted. He's probably up two minds of what could have been in January. And we don't know why he didn't go, right? I will say I was right that he wasn't going to go. Uh, you were. I was wrong. You were right. Also, I was right five years ago when I said LAFC would get in the fifth year. But I think that's what's going on with Christian him. I, just I, cashing in all the receipts tonight. I got two. That's it. Been wrong plenty of times. <laughs> but I just think I think you bring up a really good point there, Chris. When Rossi's form dipped, it was because he was of two minds or uh, was close to to a transfer, and then the pandemic happened. I think for him, he was excited to be going into the EPL or La Liga. Uh, due to his form and performance last season, it didn't happen. Hopefully, he performs well so he can become as marketable as possible and go to the team he wants to and also as profitable as possible for LAFC this summer. But if he continues on this form, that's not going to happen. So he needs to you know, shake it off and do better because Tillman's in the wings. And I think he's fortunate that Tillman picked up a little bit of a knock. He might get more playing time in the near future. But without performances, as soon as Tillman is back... I think he's going to become the first one off the bench in the midfield again. I think it's safe to say that Tillman is no longer in the wings. Uh, He is at the forefront for LAFC. I think he's proven himself to be in the starting three midfielders. Uh, At least that certainly looks the way Dolo has been lining it up. A man who is now in the wings and made his LAFC debut in a derby, bringing immediately in the moment some Orta flashbacks for all of us was none other than Mateusz Bogus, who came in and I have to say the kid looked electric. We haven't really had a chance to see much of him at all. There's certainly, you know, not a lot of great videos coming out of his, his former club's time. And, and all those training videos are always 
just player highlights of, of the best, right? Haven't had a chance to really go back and watch any of his matches in their entirety, but we did get to see him sub into the game. And we got to see about 20, 25 minutes or so of Mateusz Bogus. So immediately, Christian, I'm curious, from a tactical standpoint, what do you think he brought to the game? He certainly looked electric from the stands. How much of that was just first game jitters and anxiety? And and what do you think he's going to bring to the black and gold's attack? I think you're right. Part of that is trying to get up to speed in the rhythm of the game. But he did look obviously quick, very smart. I just think there isn't the understanding with Buanga and Buke yet. But I think he's going to be a really good contribution. I think I read that he can be a 10, an 8, or a winger. So I can see all those attributes. And I agree with you. I think he almost made an impact. He almost could have had some key passes and potential scoring opportunities. It didn't come off, but I think... It's going to be interesting how, if he plays in the midfield, how he contributes. Because at that point in time, also, when the Galaxy were pushing, his defensive positioning and how defensive-minded was a little bit of a liability, right? So I don't think he was contributing defensively the way we needed him at that point in time. But yes, going forward, I think I saw a lot of promise. So we'll see. I mean, he just got here. And understanding how we will need to utilize him defensively is something that will come. And I know that Steve Chirondolo will make a point of that, too. I thought it was interesting that when Galaxy switched to the more offensive-minded 3-5-2 and we kind of dropped back into that that back five that we didn't see a more defensive-minded substitution come in. You know, it was Opoku off Bogushan, which I suppose is putting in a midfielder for a forward, but Bogush really played like more of a forward or at least an attacking 10 during that time. Do you think he's going to play more of a winger role for the club? More of a 10 or more of an 8? Where do you see him fitting into the squad? I don't know. I feel like it's going to be a game-by-game and game-plan situation. From what I saw, I think he's a 10 or an 8, but he can also play winger. But I think winger is going to be the third option. I think it depends who we play, what their scheme is, whether he plays more of a Sifu, which a little bit more advanced is what I call it, or like a Tillman where he does both. I didn't see enough defensive will in this game at that point in time to see him as an effective eight yet. Well, what was effective is whatever LAFC did on the day to put three goals in the back of the net by hook or by crook in a game in which we looked exhausted. We did not play the kind of pressing game that LAFC normally plays. We yielded a significant amount of possession to the Galaxy, who ironically, the Galaxy lead all of MLS in possession through the first seven games of their season through the first eight weeks of MLS number one team in possession in all of major league soccer, Carson galaxy, three points, zero wins mired in second to last place only because sporting Kansas city is, is beating them out for the, who's the more terrible competition at the moment. But I think this once again, just shows you that people who obsess on possession and saying that possession is necessarily who is dictating the game doesn't dictate results. And I thought this game was key to that. Galaxy ended up with like 70, over 70% possession. I think by the end of the game, I think it was like 74, 26 at the end. One of you who are smarter at Googling than me is going to have to figure that out real quick. But uh, are you surprised that LAFC yielded so much possession and played into what the Galaxy are trying to do throughout the course of this match, Chris? I think that it's uh, indicative of everything that LAFC had had to go through over the last two weeks. When you look at the number of matches that the Galaxy have had to participate in, 
versus what LAFC had to participate in and the amount of effort that was given. LAFC went in full force against Vancouver in both matches. So it wasn't like they spread out their effort and they still continued to put in a lot of effort in their regular season matches too. So it's it they were exhausted like you already talked about just how they looked at the end of that game so I think that when you look at all of that information if you were to then give the stat line of the possession that somebody might be a little bit more understanding as to why it was so slanted in one way well at the end of the day we walk home first win in three games that we will play versus the galaxy this year of course coming up fourth of July the big match at the Rose Bowl the midsummer spectacle for MLS, which will feature the black and gold taking on Carson once again and a chance to then beat them at the Mo later in the season. As it stands right now, in all matches versus the two teams, Galaxy have seven wins, LAFC up to six. They have won the last three in a row, I believe, to an order because at one point in time it was seven to three and it's now seven to six. So one more win and we even this up. That's right. So overall, right now, this is the 18th all-time matches, including the U.S. Open Cup. Seven wins for the Galaxy, six wins for LAFC, and five ties. So, in theory, we potentially could have this totally swinging in our way by the end of the season, should we handle business. And we will then be leading the all-time series for the first time in the history of this rivalry. Well, and when it comes to playing the Galaxy on a neutral site... If the MLS is back tournament tells us anything, we have spanked them when it comes to playing them at a neutral site. So hopefully the 4th of July plays out the same. Gentlemen, any final thoughts on the Galaxy and our match before we move on to some big news in the black and gold community? Only that there has been a lot of, you know, news outlets saying that the Galaxy are of the past. So those have been enjoyable Monday morning readings for me. That's all I have to say. Apple News, LA Times, Daily News. Appreciate all those people sharing. It's interesting to see it like imploding. Their whole being is imploding, you know. And I saw somebody talk about how they're like, oh, if the galaxy were to cease to exist today, that LAFC would have nothing to talk about. That is all false narratives. All false narratives. I got plenty of stuff to talk about. You're, we're just talking about the galaxy because it's relevant but guaranteed next week, we aren't going to talk anything about the Galaxy because we're going to keep on trucking. But it's just great. It's honestly, it's really entertaining to see it all just kind of crumble to the ground. Yeah, I like the back when Delgado was still Marky Mark. This is how the rivalry took its start. And it was them winning a game. And, uh, you know, they haven't really haven't really been able to unseat us when it comes to the big games. That's for sure. And the tide has most assuredly turned in our direction. We should have never changed his name. all right moving on to the other massive news that dropped this week and chris my condolences as i know your allegiances in this particular neck of the world lie elsewhere but lafc officially announced its investment in austrian club fußball club vaca innsbruck pending the approval of the board of association so I've got a little history for you here on the town of Innsbruck. For those of you who don't know, it's about an hour directly south of Munich in the Austrian Alps. It's the capital of the Tyrol region of Austria, fifth largest city in Austria. Massive, massive community for winter sports. They, of course, hosted the Winter Olympics in both 64 and 76. 
So, gentlemen, before we dive too much into the history of Fußball Club Vaca Innsbruck, what are your thoughts on the acquisition or potential acquisition pending approval of an Austrian team by the black and gold? Chris, I'm going to start with you as our, our resident Austrian football expert. And you can tell us a little bit about how this breaks your heart. Terrible. It's terrible news. So I am a fan supporter of FC Pinsgau Southalden, which is a third division team right now. And uh, right now in the, in the Austrian Bundesliga, there's uh, the two main top flights that, that are straightforward with ProRel. And the third division is just going to start having ProRel. After the right now, currently the third divisions have these regionals, right? There's four regionals and the top two teams compete. And from those top two teams, one team gets promoted into the second division. But going forward in the 2023-2024, there's actually going to be a third tier that has pro-rel into the second tier. But FC Waka Innsbruck is currently in the fourth tier of the Austrian football. But that's not because of their ability. They were actually a relatively strong club, and they had been in the first tier of the Austrian Bundesliga. And uh, that was... As early as 2017, I think, was the last year that they were in the first tier. But uh, they had some financial troubles, and so then they had uh, been demoted to the fourth tier. But you know, I'm a little disappointed, right? Uh, FC Pinsgau Southalden is uh, is in very nice, very very lovely area. And they've had you know RSL players on loan that are now playing for RSL. And actually, if one has just moved uh, to Austin, they've had Seattle players on loan, and they're now playing for Seattle and it's it's in the Salzburg region of Austria so it's you know it's a bummer I'm a little bummed right like I would love to see some black and gold players playing for Pinsgau but I digress but if you guys are interested in the Austrian Bundesliga and you are wanting to listen there is a podcast called the other Bundesliga that I highly recommend and it breaks down everything in the Austrian Bundesliga league. My, my reaction to it is, you know, there seems like LAFC does their due diligence and are usually playing chess when most of the MLS are playing checkers. And I anticipate once this goes through, number one, number two, they probably want some sort of training ground for some of um, our LAFC two or prospects that we may have in the future, some sort of network building, like there's Red Bull, there's Citigroup. There are different partnerships around the world and maybe LAFC and their investors and the owners are trying to establish something of the sort with this Austrian club investment. We already have an agreement with Bayern. I, I foresee other things of this nature over the course of the next, you know, whatever set of years to happen. So let's talk a little bit about FC Wacker. So this is a team that was founded in 2002 after the collapse of what was then called FC Tirol Innsbruck. Tirol is the state in which the town of Innsbruck is located. So very much like LAFC rose from the ashes of a fallen club. Here we have a very similar story being told. However, this case in the OB, the Österreichische Bundesliga or Austrian Bundesliga, as it's more affectionately referred to. So they were founded and joined into the third tier in 2003. They got promoted that season and in 0304 went up to the second tier where they got promoted again. Back-to-back promotions in their first two seasons made it to the Austrian Bundesliga in 2005. They were there for three seasons before they got relegated after the 07-08 season. In 10, they were promoted back up to the Bundesliga. 
And in 13-14, they were relegated back down again. Uh, They stayed in that second tier all the way up until recently where they failed to file some paperwork due to financial instability. And as a punishment, were kicked from the second tier all the way down to the fourth tier. So we're going to run a little bit through what do the tiers mean. So currently right now, they're playing in the Hippotriole Landesliga, which is the fourth tier of Austrian football. Now, there is Pro-Rel. So for those of you who are not familiar, the first tier, which is called the OB, the Österreichische Bundesliga. Österreich is the word for Austria in, in German, the native language of Austria. So the Austrian Bundesliga, that's your first tier. Second tier, which has actually had its naming rights sold to a betting company, is the Hypebet Schwei Liga, which was formerly called the Asta Liga, which makes it even more confusing because that rebrand just happened in 2018. Uh, but there are 16 teams that make up that second tier. Only the top team goes up, but the bottom three teams go down into this very complicated third tier that Chris was talking about. And under the new rules, what's called the Austrian Regional League in English, or Österreichische Regionalligen in German, that's a fun one, is actually now going to be divided into five conferences. You have the East, or Ost, which covers most of Vienna, Lower Austria, Bergenland region. The Central, the Mitte, uh, which covers Carthinia, Upper Austria, and parts of the eastern part of the Tyrol region. Then you have the Salzburg region, which Chris knows well as his team comes from the Salzburg region. And then you have this Tyrol virgin, which has uh, all of the regions of that north central portion of Austria where Innsbruck is located. And then the Elite League of Warburg, which covers the state of Warburg out in the west. And that makes up kind of that, that third tier. The fourth tier where this team currently plays in, known as the Austrian Lands League or the Österreichische Landesliga, is currently divided into a mind-numbing nine conferences, one for each Austrian state, right? 50 states make up the U.S. You got nine states that make up Austria. And there is currently a league for each one of those states. And the Tirola of Tyrol, the Tyrol Region League, would be the one that Wacker Innsbruck currently plays in. Did I get all that right, Chris? Yes, those are the current formats. However, like I said, starting next season in the 2023-2024 season, the third tier is going to do away with the Regional Liga, and they're going to have more of a traditional third tier that has straightforward pro-rel, and they're not going to have the division by geography but the fourth tier is still going to be divided by geography and they're still going to have to play their way out of that fourth tier in order to get into this new third tier correct yes but i mean if you look at waka and and what they've done i mean they're not going to have a hard time getting out of the fourth tier in relative short time i would assume it would that and then having the path to promotion with a straightforward third tier i mean I think that LAFC had invested in a club that had the abilities to be in the second tier with an opportunity to potentially send LAFC Academy players or LAFC 2 players or potentially even some players that might even be on the starting that might be with the first team to this club. I don't think that they would invest in a fourth tier club that doesn't have the opportunity or potential to get back to a league that is just under the uh, Austrian Bundesliga. So I would anticipate that, you know, this team is going to move through the ranks in relative ease. 
There was a statement put out by the LAFC Executive Vice President of Corporate Strategy and Development, none other than Mr. Benny Tran, who said, We are incredibly honored and excited to work with FC Vaca Innsbruck for the opportunity to pursue an investment in this club. FC Vaca Innsbruck obviously has a storied history with legendary supporters, and because of that, we believe in this club, we believe in its fan base, and we believe that together we can rebuild a winning team that will ultimately return to the Bundesliga. Which really highlights one thing that this team is really known for is having some pretty legendary support, something I think everyone in the black and gold community is very happy to hear about. This is a team that has had supporters travel hundreds of miles in big matches in order to help see their team up to promotion. And we're very disappointed when the financials of their team fell apart. And I hope that this information is very well received to them to know that an influx of capital from the black and gold will be coming their direction. Yeah, that's actually one of the biggest things that my friend Dave, who is the chief brand officer over for Pinsgau Southalden, had said, he goes that Vaca Unsbuk is a club with huge tradition and fan potential from a strategic perspective, a good choice for a long-term collaboration. So he's giving credit where credit's due. So it's uh, bittersweet, but it will be interesting. You know, I got some skin in the game. So when Vaka Unsburg and Pinsgau Southalden have a clash head-to-head, I might just have to fly out to Austria to, to go check that one in. It's a beautiful country. Innsbruck is located in the Austrian part of the Alps, one of the most stunningly beautiful mountain ranges in the world. And uh, looks like Innsbruck's going to be a beautiful town for us all to visit. I've taken a train through there, but I didn't get off the train when it stopped in Innsbruck. But uh, I remember the train ride vividly because it was one of the most beautiful trips through the Alps that one could possibly imagine. And uh, even though this was many years ago when I was 18 at the time, it was one of the most beautiful sets of scenery I've ever seen in my life. So hopefully we all get a chance to uh, go out there and, and enjoy a trip to the Austrian Alps. Just a little pronunciation guide for everybody out there who's looking at the team and going, it looks like Wacker. Well, W's are pronounced like V's in German. So it's not Wacker, uh, it's Wacker. So pronounce that like a V and you'll be pronouncing it correctly. Although I can already see the jokes rolling in and the sophomoric side of me is all here for it. Gentlemen, any final thoughts on the club's acquisition of FC Wacker Innsbruck Fußball Club Wacker Innsbruck in der Österreichische Bundesliga? No, but I'm really glad that you're here to be able to pronounce all those things for us, bro. Boy, yeah. Jonathan said. I, I, I would not have even come close to that. Just wait till we're playing a game in the Niederösterreichische Landesliga and then uh, I'll, I'll really get to bust out all my family's German that, that you know I've what? forgotten th- most of. I think that like we've added an LSU 2 segment to this. I think we need to add a Vaka Innsbruck segment just so I can hear you say the names over and over. Yeah. Sehr schön. Wir können es machen. Gehen wir. Auf geht's Vaka. Um, yeah, I'm sure Philly and I and uh, Michael Standick and maybe Joseph Zaka and a few other of uh, my, my fellow Krauts in the L.A. community are going to have to get together and uh, have some fun over this one. I've never really had a team in Austria that I rooted for prior to this announcement. Sorry, Chris. I know you've been trying to get me on the Pinsgau 
bandwagon for some time now. And I was very excited about it. I have to be honest. I was one purchase away potentially from joining you on that train, but uh, this may have derailed that effort. I apologize. My loyalties to the Bro, black and gold. You can be an owner of Pinsgau South Alden like I am. Because I have dreams of becoming the owner of a football club, but slightly different financial situation in my world at the moment. I'm not exactly buying football teams kind of money. Well... I mean, you could work for him. Come on, bro. Hey, look, if, if they offered me a job, Pinsgow it is, man. Up the Pinsgow. I'm I'm all for it. Up the pins. But yeah, it's uh that's that's probably not happening anytime soon either. But uh I'll nonetheless, I'll work. You know, don't pick its side just yet, bro. Like, don't I'll work on it, bro. Hey, look, they need an English broadcaster that can pronounce names in German. I'm here for you. That's one of my very short skill set there. I can pronounce things in German. That's uh, I, let's go for it. I can't wait till some of these games start popping off in Austria. I'll, I'll bring the wine. Let's do it. It's going to be a good time. Austria makes some fantastic wine. Everybody always thinks of the Germanic countries as being beer country, but uh, Austria, as opposed to its German counterparts, far more of the wine country. And Austrian wine is hot right now. You know, not to dive into the booze world, but typically throughout the 20 plus years I've been in the industry, Austria is like 15th or 16th in sales on the import list. And this last year, it is now Third in my import sales behind France and Italy. It has overtaken Spain and Portugal, which is insane to think that that much Austrian wine is selling when five to 10 years ago it was mired in obscurity. But just goes to show you how things come around. And maybe that speaks volumes for what's happening in Austrian football as well, too, as their wine is certainly certainly making a, a surge right now in, in the numbers. But uh, no, none of you care about that. So Let's go ahead and move on. In other LAFC news, there is the LAFC 2 update, which is still a lackluster update because LAFC 2 is still looking for their very first victory. They have yet another loss to Houston, the Houston 2 side. But again, this was on PKs for those of you that uh, may not have remembered. When a match in the MLS Next Pro ends in a tie they go directly into PKs and there is a team that walks away with two points and the loser out of the PKs walks away with one point. So LAFC 2 lost on 4-1 to one in PKs after a 0-0 end of regulation scoreline. Still looking to get that first victory in the in the wins column, but they'll have another chance this upcoming weekend, April 23rd. They're going to be away at Portland. The kickoff is at 5 p.m. For those of you with MLS season pass, feel free to jump on and watch. And then they do return home. Mark your calendars. They return home March 30th versus San Jose 2, and that kickoff is at 3.30. So next game is going to be versus the Saplings the feeder club for Portland. And after that, it will be what the aftershocks. Uh, what is the quake second team? What is our, our term of endearment for them going to be? Maybe we'll have to figure that out when we do that recap episode, but LAFC, Richters. Two, the Richters, baby Richters, baby Richters. I like that. That's that's yeah, that's good. Dynamo, the little dynamo, the dinamitos. I, I don't know what we'll to think of something clever for that one. Some efforting involved will happen. Gentlemen, anything else before we get to an epic guest? I, I, I hate to cut the, First portion news and notes of the show down a little bit, but we do have a massive interview coming up with a massive guest that I'd like to get to. So with no further ado, let's go ahead and take our first break and we will be right back with Uncle Rich. What's up, guys? This is John McCarthy and you're listening to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. LAFC all day, baby. Joining us as our guest this week is the legend of legends, the architect of the black and gold. We say so often that this club was built brick by brick, the mortar 
that holds each of those bricks together is none other than Rich Orozco, Chief Brand Officer for the Black and Gold, your 2018 MLS Marketing Executive of the Year. If you are not following him at LAFC Rich, you're probably not listening to this podcast because I guarantee you every single one of you already are. But he's here. He's there. He's all the everywhere. It's Uncle Rich. Welcome to the show, sir. That's my intro, man. Do it for LA. Could you guys hear the trumpet? That was exciting. That was very uh, ad lib. I went for it. Good to be with you guys. And uh, we were having a quick chat ahead of time. Very, very proud of you guys for five years of shoulder to shoulder. And man, you guys are grinding and you show up and you've been consistent. And now I'm on episode what number? 154. It only took us 150 plus episodes to finally book the Whale of Wales, LAFC Rich. I was well, playing hard to get, playing hard to get. And then um, as we talk about 154, one plus five plus four, the number 10. El Maestro. Let's go. Let's make some plays happen. Let's go, gentlemen. The playmaker that you are, how did you get enthralled, involved? How did your story in the beautiful game begin? Yeah. So the Beautiful game, definitely played growing up, as we all did in the youth soccer world. And what not many people know is post my youth, we ran a legendary team, an adult team in the adult men's league of the Santa Monica Premier League, the very famous club named Matador FC. Matador FC was probably lasted about 15 years. So beyond our all of our typical AYSO football playing days and high school varsity soccer and intramurals in university, my proudest football memories are definitely Matter RFC. Me and these guys, we still keep in touch to this day. We have a group chat that talks all about LAFC. So to be able to look back with the Weekend Warrior buddies who were introduced to LAFC when it was nothing, because I was hyping, of course, and now we're in a group chat. We used to fight in the field and now we're uh, in the stands together it's pretty wild so well hold up you're burying the lead here give us a scouting report on rich orosco what position oh. you play what's your transfer value i mean you know what what are the skill sets give us the back of the card sir actually in southern california as i was playing in my high school days it was actually me and john thorrington were the top two rated midfielders in the southern california region what it was, between, it was between me and Thorrington as Manu was recruiting in Southern California. It was between me and Thorrington. They chose Thorrington. Arguably a smart boots. move on their part, but uh, uh, my boots. Uh, that is all not true. Oh, I was gonna, <laughs> I was, I was like, man, I don't know about all this. But it, <laughs> that is all completely not true. However, I can dream. What was your question, remember? <laughs> <laughs> what position did you play? Give us, oh, give us, man. give us the stats on Uncle Rich. I'll be very honest. I'm a lefty. So as we talk about La Surda, right, we talk about Bella's left foot. It gets me right inside because I was that guy. I would take all the corner kicks. It's fun to be a lefty because you take it the left wing, right? You rock that or you take the right wing and cut in like Bella. But yeah, lefty, outside back or outside wing. And varsity soccer was probably my height <laughs> of my skill sets. I remember running that five minute and 37 second mile. And uh, in Austin, Texas, for the uh, Westlake Chaparral's varsity team. And that was it, man. The rest of it was very intramural after high school. We were a top team in Texas in high school. I think we were top 10 in high school. 
but those are man that was the uh that was the early 90s so it was a whole whole different world then but uh, after that I hung up my boots and very intramural buddies and then the weekend warrior adult leagues that was that was that was my uh, my glory speaking about texas right you go on to school in austin right and i remember when we went to austin for the very first away days in austin you had gotten together and with a bunch of your uh, college buddies and things like that what brought you eventually to la from living in texas yes i was born in la born in montebello shout out to the east side Dad is Roosevelt High School, East L.A. Mom is Montebello High School. And my dad worked for the IRS, entered the executive training program. So we had an opportunity to move as a family. So at eight, I moved to Seattle. So uh, believe it or not, I was an early Mariners fan back in the day. Seahawks back in the day. Not diehard now, of course. But for an L.A. kid to go to Seattle, pretty cool. Culture shock, right? Weather. The diversity, you know, Seattle is much different as far as people go, but it was cool. So Seattle was five years, believe it or not, Boise, Idaho, two years. And that was cool again, because I learned how to ski. I mean, it was 45 minutes of the hill and we had a mammoth type of mountain, which is pretty cool. And then ended up in Austin, Texas for high school and stayed for the University of Texas, stayed for school. The good thing for those of us who've moved a lot, and I don't know how many, which ones of you guys moved a lot growing up. You, you have to figure things out in a new environment. You have to figure it out. There's no cheat sheet. You, you walk into a new school. Nobody's telling you where to go, who to meet, et cetera, what table to sit at. So it was very, looking back on it, it was great to, you know, forces you as a, as a youth to figure things out and to figure out how things work on your own. And there's definitely not a lot of comfort zone. That definitely helped with LAFC, right? I mean, look how diverse our community is. I kind of grew up with a lot of change and always new friends and new questions and new cultures. So I think that kind of baked into me, you know, I'm very comfortable kind of rounding up very diverse groups of people and getting us all to go in the same direction. So looking back on it, that that was a good thing about moving a lot. And then I went back to LA. So right right after I graduated from University of Texas, all my family's still here, very much on the east side of LA, Montebello, Whittier. And so I knew I had a home base to come back to as you're a kid dreaming after college, right? Where are you going to move? So ended up coming back to LA and uh, now I've been back uh, back since the mid-90s. Obviously, you have the dream job of dream jobs, working for the black and gold, an architect of the culture for LAFC. But prior to that, you had a pretty illustrious career, one might say, executive director of advertising and promotions for a little company known as CBS. You then went over and took over the marketing at another small company, Warner Brothers. We heard about your time with the LA Matadors, but you have not talked to us about the World Series of Boxing or being an executive producer for Fox Sports West coverage of boxing. You also went into the clothing business for a while. You've been in brand development. So tell us a little bit about how the patchwork of all those careers leads together. So after I came back to LA, I just wanted a fun marketing job. So I liked Definitely chose a business school, interested in business. I love the creative side of business, which obviously you lean towards marketing versus finance or accounting. And I just wanted a cool job. So I wrote 28 letters to Lakers, the Raiders were here, Dodgers, Capitol Records, Disney, Paramount, Warner Bros. So I wanted a fun marketing job in entertainment or sports. 
a and, laundry list uh, of companies kicking themselves right now. There you go. <laughs> and I, well, a couple of them got me, uh, but I had uh, zero contacts. So I, re- I remember I, re- I wrote 28 letters and I got six responses and two of those responses turned into internships. That's why when I talk to young people today, like it, it doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter who you know. You know inside if you're ready for challenges and, and if you're prepared. So as long as you're prepared with your schooling, with your experience, with your hustle, like you got to reach out. You got to go for it. And so my going for 28 letters, six responses, the two that landed, I was an intern for Disney in their motion picture group. It was called, I don't know if it's still called it, Buena Vista Pictures. So I had a marketing internship on campus at the University of Texas, which was cool. And then in L.A., when I came for the summer, I was an intern for Paramount Pictures in the motion picture group. So I was the kid handing out programs for movie premieres. And I remember meeting Sharon Stone. I remember meeting Harrison Ford. I remember working, believe it or not, the Forrest Gump premiere with Mr. Tom Hanks. And I remember Forrest Gump, like literally the launch of that at Paramount. So those are fun memories on the as the the intern and and I know nobody and how do I get in the business? And then my first full-time job, because we all know once you jump into a world, the rest is your relationships. And I always tell again, young people, like everybody's watching, people are always watching you. And you don't know who they know. So I just kept my head down and you end up meeting meeting the HR people at the studio. And I got my first job in home video marketing. Home videos, if you remember, were a thing with the cassettes. And I was there for about a year and a half as an assistant in home video marketing. I remember walking to the commissary, getting bagels and crispy bacon for the executives for their breakfast. (laughs) I remember all that grind. And uh, again, kept my head down. So were you selling beta or VHS at this point? Uh, Had it gone from black and white to color, I guess? It was definitely VHS. I remember that. And then DVDs were the next big thing. So I remember the scary time when DVDs came. But I left, I left home video to, I went to the TV. I was at Paramount Pictures in Hollywood, which is really fun for a young person because it feels like a college campus. For those of you listening and those of us who worked at studios, it is pretty cool because you could you have lunch with the character from Star Trek and there's, you know, Jonathan, you're the lighting guy. Chris, you're a producer. And the other Chris, you're a writer. So to work at a studio when you're young is really cool because you meet a ton of people and you really are kind of baked into a community, which is kind of cool. So, uh, but I went over to TV. So I stayed at Paramount. I went to TV because when you're in home video and the movie's a hit, you're probably going to sell a lot of VHSs back then or DVDs. I didn't feel like there's a lot of creative marketing or creative platform to launch a new product, right? It was either bigger or it wasn't come out of theaters. So I was attracted to TV because there was an opportunity to launch new product, new shows. It's the shoulder to shoulder TV show. What's the campaign? Who are these guys? Who are our cast here? What does Jonathan bring? What does Chris bring? What does Chris bring? What's the campaign? What's the ad? What's the billboard? So I got attracted to television because, again, the opportunity to launch a new product. And that was my first little run at studios. And then I ended up, I was in TV at Paramount Television, which is now owned by CBS. Paramount Television for six years. And I ended up running marketing for Entertainment Tonight. Man, I don't even know how many years I've been in the air now. 30 plus years, I think. And I'm going to get it wrong. But the number one entertainment news show in the U.S. So that was that was a lot of fun. And I learned the ins and outs of kind of celebrity news and this world that we all create in entertainment. And that was my first run at Paramount. Anything sound fascinating about that? 
Well, I think if you want to hear more about entertainment tonight, you can go back and listen to Shoulder to Shoulders interview with a certain member of entertainment tonight that I believe you you know, Rich, and invite to uh, down in the S tens there, Mr. Kevin Frazier. So me and Kevin worked together. Man, what year was that? I think I left ET in two thousand six. We worked together in the early two thousands. Kevin Frazier, a diehard black and gold brother, and now we're together. It was probably fifteen years later. And we gave each other a giant hug, and we both love football and both love LAFC. So the circles always come around. After ET, I launched, there was an entertainment news show called The Insider. So I launched that. And then I went to Warner Brothers, and they uh, convinced me to come over to launch TMZ. I was in the entertainment news space. I knew the space, but TMZ sounded exciting and new and disruptive, similar to LAFC. I worked with a gentleman named Harvey Levin, who was very... I learned a lot from Harvey. This guy created properties from nothing. I think in TV, what was cool about working in TV is, is learning from people, you know, TV, internet entertainment, movies, TV. It's us four have an idea about a movie. Who's going to write it? Who's going to produce it? Who's going to raise the funds for it? Like you're really creating something out of nothing in entertainment. And there's no science to it, right? Because if there was a science to entertainment, every studio would be making a ton of money. Every movie would make a half a billion dollars. And there'd be a hundred Titanics. This is not how it works. It's very subjective, right? In our taste and what story needs to be told. But I, I think looking back on it now as we're talking about it, that that was cool. Of being around creators and writers and producers who felt passionate about a story and how do they get it off the ground? You know, it could be a movie, a TV show. It could have been just an entertainment news piece or Jonathan Reimer's an upcoming actor. Like, let's tell a story. So it probably got me in the headspace of how do you create a conversation from zero and then get to a place where where you can create something from zero. So that was, that was uh, and that's what Harvey Levin did, right, with TMZ. Nobody gave him a script or the map. You know, he was, if I'm correct, if I remember his background, he was a, a reporter in the, in the court world. He just had this People's idea. court. People's court. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And he just had this idea about entertainment news told a different way. Because he had access, right, to all the behind-the-scenes courtroom uh, you know, who's who's in court today, who's trying to hide this and that. So he had that idea. And, you know, look at him. How many years later? We think we launched that show in 2008. So that's going to be probably 14 plus years in. And again, it was probably good that I think about it, that I was around a lot of people creating ideas, like creating things from zero. And and he's the kind of person I watch closely, you know, as, as you get things off the ground from scratch. So that was my first startup experience, again, which helped with my LAC journey is, is you know, there's a few of you in a room with an idea. I learned how to be brave to keep pushing through those early ideas and then take the steps necessary to try to bring them to reality. And a lot of people, they freeze. They freeze with new ideas. They freeze when you're talking to your buddy in the backyard, having a beer, and you got the next big thing. Like, they freeze, and really nothing happens next. And being at Warner Bros. at that time, launching that show, like, I really I kind of cut my teeth on seeing how something can be created from zero and what are those steps to, that you need to push it through. So you move on from working in television and you go into the business of startups. And of course, folks, if you want to hear more about Kevin Frazier and all his dirty stories on Rich Orozco, you can go back to listen to episode 104 of Shoulder to Shoulder podcast featuring Kevin Frazier, Emmy Award winning Kevin Frazier, solid dude. Mm-hmm. So you move into the world of now launching brands. And so you launched a clothing brand and you launched a fire brand, which was really just a brand management and an engine to help other people launch brands. 
And that kind of rounds out the pre-LAFC career for Rich Orozco. But we are glossing over perhaps your greatest marketing move in that time. And we know Rich is a champion at selling an idea. But how you managed to sell the idea of one Rich Orozco to your lovely wife, Julie, is a question that many of us in the black and gold community are still scratching our head over. Your lovely wife, of course, star of close to 100 different IMDb credits. We're talking Dexter, Buffy, Angel, Desperate Houseload, Desperate Housewives, and a load of other things as well, too. I'm so curious. How did you manage the marketing move of the century with that one, sir? <laughs> That's a great question. How do I answer this one in a very honest way? When you're introduced through friends, you can mess up a bunch of times. And you get a lot more credit than if she would have met me at a bar. So thankfully, we have some mutual friends. They co-signed for me. I was just supposed to be the fun guy. It was not supposed to be anything serious. And, uh, you know, the rest the rest is history. We dated for five years, been married 10. And uh, I got lucky. But, yeah, friends. If you get a referral through friends, you get a you get a couple chances. You don't just get one; you get a couple. That's that's my tip on that one. So we look at you know where you are with LAFC, and some people have definitely seen how you've helped build this foundation and helped cultivate part of the culture and, and things like that here at the club. But what some people might not know is that even prior to your time with LAFC, you were part of the Breezy Foundation, which is heavily involved with LAFC right now in the youth leadership program. And that was kind of how the whole thing had started, right? It was from you being involved with the Breezy Foundation and uh, the club kind of inquiring about a name that you guys had trademarked. So the short story of this one, but but a very beautiful story is in 2012, me and a buddy who turns out to be, he's actually, he works for the LAPD. He's an officer. We met at a communications course and we made a commitment to each other to create a youth leadership program teaching job skills and life skills through sport, through soccer. And we t it turned out, you know, Whenever you create something from zero again, if you you have to declare it first, you got to say it, and then hopefully you have people around you that keep you accountable to doing it. And we kept each other accountable, and we believe it or not, we met. So we committed to creating a leadership program. We toured South Central, where he was actually an officer at the Seventy Seventh Division. Believe it or not, that division is probably twenty blocks south of our then future stadium in South LA. And we ended up meeting community leaders to kind of package, how does this program work? We need a field, we need a location, we need some partners. We met the principal of Augustus Hawkins High School on 60th and Slauson. Again, 20-something blocks south of BMO. Tony Terry, got to give him a shout out. Uh, he saw our vision, he gave us his field, and we all know in LA it's very tough to get field space. Then we met Bishop David O'Connell. And... Those of, some of you may have remembered his name in the news, sadly, recently. He was recently murdered in L.A. He was a very good friend of ours and gave his life to serve in the community 30 plus years in the inner city as an Irish Catholic priest who loves football. We met up with David back in 2012, and he completely got our vision quickly, made calls for us in the community, and put a really a, a team of advisors together where we started the LAFC Youth Leadership Academy in South LA. And we would have Friday night events at Augustus Hawkins High School. 
where the kids would bring their friends and they were community clinics. So I would call, believe it or not, Mike Erush is the current head coach at Cal State LA for the men's team. He was one of my first college coaches. I believe he was an assistant at LMU at the time to run a clinic. USC women's coach. We had Northridge, I believe. We had Fullerton. So we had these Friday night lights, kind of nights where we'd guest coaches would teach the kids. And the idea was a community garden format where they would they would promote it themselves. So we ended up having about 200 kids a night at these LFC youth leadership events in 2012 before the club existed. And my first community partner was the Brazil Youth Center, who we're still partners with now. Seth Eklund is still the executive director. He was our grant writer in our insurance. So over six months, we raised $200,000. We just felt compelled to serve the community. We loved football and we knew the impact it could have with young people. We didn't have kids in South LA, neither me or Brody and the rest of the team. We just felt compelled and drawn to that community. So Seth, we ended up raising $200,000. We hired a staff. And then this is where the magic happens in 2000, I think it was 2014. My high school soccer teammate from, and I'll, I'll say it slowly because it's really tough to follow the dots, but it's pretty cool. My high school soccer teammate in Austin, Texas, his name is Twain Nguyen. Twain and I went from the University of Texas to LA. He went from LA to Vietnam, to Ho Chi Minh City. He ended up working at ad agencies in Vietnam. He ended up meeting Henry Nguyen, who was our first lead managing owner, who brought in their first two owners, um, Vincent Tan and Ruben Ganalagam, who owned Cardiff City and QPR. And in Henry's office in Ho Chi Minh City, they were Googling LAFC. And they found our program, LAFC. And he saw me post on my personal Instagram at that time about our Friday Night Lights. And he said, he sent me a WhatsApp. He's like, what is this? I was like, it's my youth leadership program. And he said, you got to Skype me right now. We're coming to LA in two weeks. We are, we just bought the rights to the new MLS club for $100 million. And we'll be in Hollywood announcing it at Siren Studios in October of 2014. And we're calling it LAFC. So really hard to script that one. If we would not have started the LAFC Youth Leadership Program with, you know, with our commitment to, to youth and providing job skills and life skills outside of our daily jobs, I would have never had the grassroots experience on the ground and really seen in kids' eyes what this sport and what the culture means to them and how it can really change a community and, and unify a community. So I had that on the ground experience. And then how could I have scripted that my high school buddy would have gone to LA, to Southeast Asia, locked in with these guys. And next thing you know, I'm on in my Siren Studios with Magic Johnson, Mia Hamm, Nomar Garcia Parra, the entire early LFC ownership group, and including a lot of our supporter group leaders were there too. I believe Julio and Ray were also there at the same event. Yeah, in 2014. So it all creating something from nothing with that youth leadership program kickstarted, I think, the journey of a lifetime for me. And I'm uh, I'm very grateful. Pretty wild. It appears that this eclectic background, right? each one of these steps somehow takes you to, at some point, LAFC officially approaching you. And they approach you with the title of Senior VP of Culture and Community. 
Later, you become a VP of Brand and Community in 2017. And now you have the glorious title of Chief Brand Officer. So, you know, I think it's it's been a, a quite the journey the last five years, not only for the podcast, but, you know, being able to meet you early on and seeing all the things that you help build, connect, taking these experiences, at least I feel very fortunate to be part of the conversation of you sharing this, telling us how all these things lead to a point in time and to this conversation of building a brand. but. Tell us the LAFC flavor of being able to do that or explain how you feel about that over the last several years. Yeah. So flashing back to that time, I had no ambitions to work for the club. I was just sharing my thoughts on how you could develop roots in LA. Any new organization coming into the city, it's very hard to create roots here, to be noticed, to separate from the crowd. It's a tough place, right? Any major market, it's a tough place to make an impact. And again, since I was on the ground, I'd advised the early LAFC ownership group. And then, you know, Tom Penn's also included in that. I just really shared that if we go deep and not wide, and my example was always, you know, let's not throw a thousand soccer clinics and pass out an LAFC water bottle and pretend that we're going to create community. And then they never see us again. How do we do a small number of programs and key initiatives and we stick with it and we're consistent and we keep showing up and we develop relationships with people. And one thing I learned from Peter Gruber early in an early meeting was he talked about relationships, not transactions, which is very, very important. All of us know the impact of that, whether you're on the outside or the inside, right? None of us want to feel like just a number in our lives. A lot of times in sports, if you meet somebody at a sports team, they're going to say, hey, guys, uh, nice to meet you. Hey, do you want to buy group tickets? Right. What's next? They kind of look over your shoulder like, what's next? What What's the business you could bring me as a sports team? And I just felt early, like, let's create real roots here in L.A. But what I knew would scale it and create something special is if we did the small things right. I come from content. I come from television. I come from working with incredible storytellers. So I knew that if we did the small things right, it's the content that makes it scalable. You don't have to have, again, a thousand super surface clinics and crossing your fingers that people are, are going to go to your matches and think you care. Like, let's just all four of us have a pint, you know, classic football culture and talk about LA and talk about what we want to create together and talk about football. Um, we put Let's put that on video. Right. Let's tell that story. And that's, you know, for me, the what happened with LFC and a lot of great grassroots brands is, you know, content makes grassroots scalable because a lot of people in sports, they think scalable first, like that idea doesn't sound big enough. Right. Especially in a market like L.A. It's not big enough. How are we going to get big? How are we going to get there? And I just, you know, a lot of us early and it wasn't just me, a lot of us early were just preaching patience that. And that's why we kind of kicked off with the street by street, block by block, one by one. Because that, the idea of one by one is not overwhelming, right? If, you, if all of us stay focused on one by one, it's not overwhelming. If all of us are sitting in a conference room dreaming and talking about taking over the, the biggest teams in LA, that's overwhelming. And nobody can do that. So we just kept really focused and patient on one by one, grassroots content, grassroots content, grassroots content. That's what creates something special because you need a lot of people kind of getting what you're about and hearing your story to really be enrolled in, in what you're doing. 
and they kind of joined the movement. And, you know, I think with LAFC, like we've really created a, a very special and exciting movement in LA. Right. And you, you guys all feel it like everybody's welcome. And you can't do that with a marketing campaign. You can't do that with a billboard buy. It's not how it works. You got to have the one by one. You got to be in the pubs. I jokingly, I think I told somebody today, I jokingly, I've never drank so much beer in my life than the last five years. So there's one thing I'll give LFC credit for is I've, I've drank a lot of beer. A lot of beer. So something I thought that might be a little bit fun is, you know, because you, Rich, have met so many people throughout you know, your time with LAFC and you've impacted so many people's lives. I thought it might be fun if we went around and we told you our first memory of meeting you, if any of those rung a bell. So I'll go first. One by one. All right. It's good. The first time I remember meeting you was February 28th, 2017. It was the LAFC by Mitchell and S and Nikki sports collab over at the Nikki sports on seventh street. And that was when they released the all black LAFC hat and they released the the black with like a flat gold hat. And I remember I went there, I was at my in-laws house in Canyon country and we were there for dinner and the event started at 8 PM. And I told them, I was like, look, I got to go at six o'clock. I'm going to LA for this event. They didn't understand it at the time. They thought I was ridiculous going there you know, because I we didn't know what to expect either. I didn't know what the giveaway was. I was just like, look, I want to be a part of this. So I went, I went there and I got the hats. And when I walked out, I'm just kind of like putting around and looking around and things like that. And I run into you and I didn't know who you were at the time, but you had asked me, you're like, oh, so what do you think of the hats? And I was like, oh my God, I love them. These are great. And you're like, all right, cool. And then we just chopped it up a little bit and and that was it. And I went on my way, right? But I didn't forget the face and then come to find out you know, months later, then we actually put a name with the face and I saw you at more events, but that was the very first event that I remember seeing you at. And it was in that parking lot just out in front of Nikki's where we talked and, and mingled. And, and, uh, that's my first, that was my first memory of, of hanging out with you. And, and that's a, that's a big, that was a big day. And, you know, the cap, and I think a lot of us know this, you know, the cap is a symbol of our movement. And the dream was always to create the next Dodgers cap in L.A. But what we knew was if you put football on top of that, it's global. Right. And for kids, you know, a Dodgers or a Yankees cap is aspirational. Right. Those are two aspirational cities, L.A. and New York. So you'll see somebody rocking a Dodger cap in South America or Asia or Yankees, and they may not even completely know it's a baseball team. Right. It's different. So. We just, for us, the cap and that launch, I remember that launch day very, very clearly was, you know, the cap, it's not just a cap for us. It was, you know, in, in football culture, you know, we are the first football club to be known by a cap. That's incredible if you think about it. But the reason it happened was, you know, most football clubs are known by their scarves. But if I knew Reimer, Chris and Chris, I could know you guys for two years in LA. And I would have never known that Reimer's a Bayern fan because your Bayern scarf is at home. But a cap in L.A. culture, right? You're at the farmer's market. You're at the gym. You're in the office. We go have beers. You're wearing a cap. So that was our first moment where we, it was a mashup of L.A. culture, which is the cap, and a nod to the Dodgers. And how do we mash that up with football culture? So that cap day, we threw a very special event just for the cap, the drops of those caps. And it's much more than a cap. There was some chatter. 
from a certain team in the market we'll talk about later that you know all we focused on was our cap if you guys remember in social media the chatter was again heckling us that they're just a cap or their cap fc <laughs> but what they didn't realize was the cap has been our trojan horse into los angeles and people weren't thinking that way so yes thank you chris that was a very good memory of that event at Nikki's, and that was a big day to drop that black on black cap. Only they had focus on their cap space, but I digress. Yeah. yeah. My first memory was I think I met you very briefly at the Experience Center, and I was meeting with Casey. Shout out to him; he's yep, been so there so. forever. Yep, Casey, mm -hmm. Casey Sosa. And I think we we got a chance to sit in prototype seats and get the potential view because at that point I don't think the stadium was really finalized. I'm talking about the North End, and I think we were walking around the potential model of the stadium and then you just happened to bump into me casey and my wife and we just met very briefly but I, i'd say one of the things that most people would probably describe you as you're very energetic and just fill a room with enthusiasm like what's next and that's what i felt and i already felt like that about the club but then it felt like everyone here believes it right and i think you were the one that maybe demonstrated the most that day so it was very brief. I don't, I'm sure you don't remember meeting me with all the people that you meet, but I remember you distinctly at that point in time. That experience was a very special place. There was a collective of all of us there, uh, given those tours. I mean, Sosa was day one, the entire group at LFC, like to be able to, uh, Vinny and Seabass, and I can name a ton of people, but uh, it was, a, it, we were all sharing, right? We were all sharing what our collective vision was, and we were also inviting everybody including you who walk in the door like let's do it together and i think that's that's why that was a that was a very special place and it's really a part of our dna because like even today you know we're eight years in and i'm you know we'll talk about the future of the club in a second but like we're eight years in and we all did this together it was not one of us it was definitely not me it was just a ton of us but what got really exciting is we we all had the same you know goal you know i think a lot of us and you guys too, like what you guys do every week with the podcast, like we all want to create a legacy for the city. And man, after the LA Times has said that we're champions now, like it's it's go time. Like all of your kids, you know, all the kids in the black and gold community, like those kids are seven or eight years old at matches. They're going to be 27 years old. Man, that stadium's going to be roaring in 20 years. And I think that's what we're all proud about. And that was the vision we had at the Experience Center for the thousands of people who walked through there. And Chris, you were one of them. So I'm glad that was your first memory. My first memory of meeting Uncle Rich was a little bit of a scary one for me, actually. I, I was a little I was a little nervous. As many of you remember, season one, my goal was not to stand out. My goal was to hide in the North End. And I did that by wearing a mask. And I remember I was at a tailgate maybe five or six games into season one. And Ray comes up to me, and in typical Ray fashion, is like, hey, gringo, come on. I got, I got something you got to see here real quick. Okay, come take a look at this, man. And he pulls up his phone, and there is a text from one Rich Orozco to Ray. And it's just a picture that's clearly taken from one of the bird's eye cameras in the North End of me waving my flag that I had made season one, wearing my mask. 
And it's a quote from Rich underneath that says, who is this guy? Legend! Exclamation point. And I thought, oh man, this is this is interesting. And he's like, hey man, no, come on. Rich wants to meet you. Let me bring him over here, right? <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay. I was like, I, you know, just kind of doing this for fun. Like, I, I don't know what I did that this guy wants to meet me. And I'm like, all right, what is like... And so at first I thought like I had done something wrong and I was about to get in trouble. And so here comes, here comes Richard Roscoe and he comes over and Ray introduces me to you. And I was just like, hi, yeah, you know, nice to meet you. I was like, what did I do? And then the conversation starts going. He just started asking me about myself and you're being very friendly. And then I was like, this guy wants something. I'm like, what, what is this guy selling me? Right. And then I realized at the end of the conversation when you're like, oh, okay, cool. Great to meet you. Nice. I was just like, this guy just wanted to meet me. That was it. There was no end game behind it. All he wanted to do was just find out who I was and say hello and, and befriend me. And I remember walking away from that conversation going like, at first, I had thought I had done something wrong and I was about to get in trouble. Second, I thought like, oh, this is going to be very transactional. That was my first thought is like, oh, this marketing guy wants, you know, maybe to, to use the likeness for a marketing thing or he wanted something out of this, you know, right? And then I realized after the fact, I was like, no, he just wanted to say hello and and, and be friends. But uh, thank you to the cell phone of one Ray Mysterio, who I did a terrible impersonation of there. And that's how I met Rich Orozco. I thought that impersonation was pretty right on. I still have that photo in my phone. It's one of your it's one of your masks. And uh, I believe I remember it was shot at a match. I think what we've done good at is anybody, you know, creative people in our community and you were creative throwing that thing on and rocking it because like, like I could, there's something about why you did it that was self-expression and you had a reason for it. And we talked about that. So what we did good early is anybody who were just creating within our community. And I, and I can name 10 of them is I just wanted to meet the creators and I wanted to understand why you guys were doing what you, what you were doing, because the more touch points we could have about why people were feeling self-expressed at LAFC, feeling comfortable bring in their passion, bring in their creativity, bring in their point of view. The more we understand what everybody was about, that's how we kind of put the big the big soup together. So yeah, you were just an example of somebody bringing it, bringing something very unique, right, to our community. And I was like, Ray, I got to meet this guy and I got to figure out why he's doing it. I knew that conversation would teach me something that we could all bring back to home base and and make sure we have that kind of environment going forward. Well, fast forward, it is now six years later. And LAFC have been through some pretty triumphant moments. I don't think any of us in our five-year plan, in our wildest expectations, would think that we would finish five years with a CCL final, two supporter shields, a Western Conference title, and an MLS Cup. Those would have been lofty expectations for anyone. Looking back on the past five years, are there moments, stories, things that stand out to Rich Orozco? What are your Mount Rushmore of memories from the first five, 10 years of LAFC? The first one is a photo in my office, which was when Bob Bradley threw the first pitch at Dodger Stadium, Bob was rocking a black and gold New Era cap with a Dodgers jersey top on the mound. That was on my vision board. That was my dream. The Dodgers, to me, are you know, the ultimate cultural icon in LA, you know, they're accessible to everyone. And that was my dream was to, how do we mash up LAFC with the Dodgers? And man, seeing Bob on that mound, like that was my first hint that something, something's happening, right? Our world's can we can collide with the Dodgers and LAFC can collide in a beautiful way in LA. We can coexist 
and support each other and be a thing. That was one moment that I'll never forget. I just want to say we are exactly two weeks away at time of recording from LAFC night at Dodger Stadium. So be sure to get your tickets for May 1st versus Philadelphia will be LAFC night at Dodger Stadium. Love to see you all there. Sorry for the shameless plug. Go ahead, Rich. Second moment, the Carlos Vela event at Expo Park where we introduced him to our entire community. I think we had almost 1,000 fans there for for to sign our first player ever. And still, six years later, our king and our captain. And there was a moment during the rally where I was on stage with Ahmad Schutz, at Ahmad Schutz, follow that guy, the best photographer in world football. I'll say it. What that guy has brought to the club his visual, in fact, Jonathan, you may have taken that picture of you with your mask. I wouldn't doubt it. So anyways, me and Ahmad were on stage. And I looked out in the sea of people, like smiles everywhere, black and gold caps everywhere, a lot of hope, a lot of just joy. And I was like, Ahmad, I was like, we have to take the Vela Jesus photo. So I told Carlos, turn around. Carlos put his hands in the air, right, like I'm here. And then Ahmad took the most amazing photo with all these incredible faces right behind Carlos Vela smiling. Even in that photo today, again, it's in my office. Julio's in that photo. Oscar's in that photo. I'm looking right now. We have so many of our early pioneers in that photo smiling. But that was uh, the Carlos Vela Jesus photo was one of my uh, favorite memories. That was a magical day. It felt like a sea of, just a sea of people like this is happening. So where does an MLS championship, a supporter shield, either the first or the second, where do all the various trophies that we've acquired along the way rank for LAFC Rich? Uh, cup, cup, cup. Uh, I, I'm, uh, I get bummed that the supporter shield doesn't get the American support that it should, right, as a league title. All of us know those league titles are the cup in many leagues overseas. So... The first supporter shield night was amazing to clinch it. I think it was, it was Houston match, if I remember, right, that we clinched it. I think it was an Optu West free kick. A beautiful memory there. I remember the locker room, Lee Nguyen spinning around in an ice bucket, and, you know, a bunch of the, the first crew, just super joy, super fun. That was great, lifting that that trophy and then the celebration. But the cup, the cup quieted everyone in, in American sports. And we knew that we needed that cup in addition to the supporter shield to check the box. And so, yeah, that one, that one, like I can't even describe how important it was, how special it was. Thank you, Gareth Bale. A bunch of us are rocking rings right now because of Gareth Bale. Thank you, Steve Trundolo, for kind of finishing what what we had been building. Um, Thank you to Bob for laying the foundation. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other night, like he was probably one of the, I mean, he was one of the few people, you know, who could, really start from scratch and kind of get us off the ground like he did, which is a beautiful thing. So, but yeah, that cup, I have another picture of my office where right at that final kick, uh, I wasn't in the, in my anxiety and 80 people hanging on me in the corner. Like I lost count on what kick, like when it was going to be finished when Ilya oh, went we, We've seen the photo and the oh, videos, yeah. man. It goes in and your face is just a blank stare. Oh, like people are jumping all over your shoulders and your face is just like, you're like in complete shock, man. That look is amazing. Obviously, when you're watching BKs, you want your guy to score. Sometimes you lose count 
I lost count. Obviously, I was rooting for Ilya when he walked up. Believe it or not, John McCarthy also lost count, our keeper. On the interview, when he came on after this, he said, he goes, I thought I had to go back out there to defend exactly. another one. So I don't feel that bad because me and McCarthy, you know, same wavelength. But, um, yeah, when, when he scored, everybody started screaming. I just looked to my right. I said, did we win? And that was my confusion. I was like, did we win? And, I mean, there was just so much going on in my head at that time. Again, I wanted anybody who was black and gold to kick that damn ball in the net. But I really did not know <laughs> what, what that was the last one. So, that and of course, if you want to hear it in the words of John McCarthy, you can go back and listen to episode 142 of Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. But I digress, Rich. There you go. That's perfect. So, yeah, man, that that moment, I think all of us have stories of where exactly we were. I love catching up with people now. If I haven't seen you in a while, I love my question is, where were you when we won the game? And who were you with? And all of us have a super fun story, right? You could have been out of town watching with somebody or in a bar by yourself screaming, but everybody has an amazing story about where they were when we won. And, and I love reliving that. I believe all four of us were in the same place at the time, Bank of California stadium. Now the Mo, of course, although all four of us in different parts of that stadium at the time in which that final goal went in, but uh, it is a moment that uh, I will never forget. And nor will any of our listeners, I imagine, at this point. Can you indulge me and you guys give me like your one minute version of where were you guys at and who are you with? Sure. Um, I, I was in the North End with the District 9 Ultras. More specifically, I was there with Rachel the Missus. So uh, the first thing I did was give her a massive hug. Sitting with me was uh, my D9U brother, Andreas Geck. And many of you know, former bass player, Madonna, Christina Aguilera, amongst other things. Paulina Rubio, most currently. He was the one sitting next to me. I gave him a big hug as well, too. High five some people I've never seen before and probably will never see again. Hug them as well, I think. And then I collapsed onto the beers and popcorn sodden ground of the North End and just took a moment to collect myself. But uh, that was my memory. Chris Christian? I was in the 227 in the South End where I usually sit. Luckily, was able to get tickets essentially on the first row where I usually sit. And I was with my wife and my two-year-old son holding him. And he had just woken up from a nap because I woke him up, Gareth Bale scored, screaming. <laughs> uh, and I was listening to, to Dave Demholm uh, with my headphone. That thing popped somewhere in the bank still <laughs> after that yeah it's you know i was with them and my my good friend college friend eric and 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 adi uh were sitting next to us two season ticket holders in the same section we just like jonathan said hugging and high-fiving everyone no one left even after you know philly scored their third goal that place was still packed and we're still screaming and gareth bell like you said you know gave us a moment and a, an additional chance and once we went to pk's it was I felt a given, to be honest with you. And it was just good to have that moment. There was emotional. I think I I didn't cry, but it was probably the closest I, I have ever felt at a sporting event and the most emotional I ever felt. And then the next day I looked at my heart monitor from my smartwatch and it, I feel like I almost had a heart attack. I think I got to like 140 or 150 in terms of heartbeats per minute, which is kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, something I'll never forget. Lots of pictures and videos that I'll be able to show my son forever that he was at the first game at two years old. And uh, I was with you in S10. I uh, was standing in the corner. I put myself up on a chair and I was up above the whole crowd filming the PKs. I still have it on my phone. I remember bringing out my uh, phone and just kind of recording the atmosphere when uh 
Mondo Fresco came on with Oye Mi Amor. And uh, that was a video that, you know, people had asked because I, you know, not a lot of people caught it in the moment. And I got the vibe from the S10 with the uh, Mana song and uh, recorded it, recorded the PKs, the whole thing in its entirety. And, uh, you know, I just celebrated with all the people there and it was definitely very crowded. I took some moments to just kind of stand there and look around and, and take it all in. But, uh, yeah, I was uh, I was with you, Rich. Amazing. We're all we're all smiling. Just remembering those, that moment, which is great. You mentioned checking boxes and how winning MLS Cup was checking arguably the largest box LAFC needed on that list. However, there was only one box left on the MLS accomplishment list for LAFC at the end of last season. And just 24 hours ago, not to bury the lead, here we are this far into recording, but we have finally checked that final box. Uncle Rich, what did yesterday mean to you getting that first win at Dignity Health Sports Park? It was the first time I left that stadium with a smile. So that helped. I think a lot of us have uh, very painful memories in that stadium. A lot of heartbeat monitors, right? A lot of, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of uh, anxiety. But it was um, there's really with that being done. There's nothing more to say. That's it. Like we're here. We're not going anywhere. There's really nothing you could say. If yeah, they're still finding ways to talk trash. It's, but there, it, there's no depth to it anymore, which is great. Now, like, let's just see eye to eye. Let's respect each other. Let's all take a step back and really appreciate football in L.A., what's happening. Right? We're all Angelinos, and we're in that stadium, and there's there's black and white in that stadium, and but we're all on this pretty cool LA football train that has never, ever, ever existed. And all of our kids are going to be able to remember these days, right? And none of us on this podcast grew up with that. We didn't grow up with a derby in our town. We didn't grow up with any of that. So a lot of what we find exciting about football culture is traveling to go see a derby in Argentina, in Germany, in England. Wow, we have one here now that people are going to talk about forever. Now football tourists are going to want to come to L.A. and see this derby. So the, the time we're living in is pretty amazing. What I'm most relieved slash happy about, really what I'm, what I'm just, I'm just glad there's nothing else to say. That's it. And just accept it. It's here. We're really here and we're doing really good. So let's put all the BS aside. Let's keep the banter fun. You know, I try to definitely lead on the more on the fun side because things can get pretty hairy and dark at times when you're going for it. But that's not what this is about. But what is fun is I always told our staff early, like what was really important to me was that LAC had a pulse, right? We're not going to back down. We're not going to just take it. We're not just going to roll over. We have a pulse. So if you're going to take a swing at us of how we're doing things, of what our community's about, what we look like, how we act, like we'll, we'll hear it out, but we're going to have a pulse. 
we're gonna have a pulse and we're not gonna back down so that's what's cool man just like it's just there's nothing else it's just we're here and it's reality right it's a big giant reality check so let's go so you talked about moving forward right the next thing what mm-hmm. we all potentially want to see next right what are the things that we're all interested in seeing this club become in 5, 10, 15 years, whatever, right? When our kids, my sons, who are currently 8 and 6, become 28 and 26. I think what I personally would like to see is just kind of what you talked about, where there's people coming to L.A. that want to see the Derby. They want to see those matches. Like, I would love for there to be, you know, global fans that you know like here we're big fans of whatever epl side or bundesliga side but it's like lafc being able to go on tour in other countries one day that's something i would love to see happen where there's such a desire to see this club that that they are able to feel the market outside of the united states couldn't agree with you more chris i think you know rich you kind of touched on it in the beginning about how whether it's an epl team a bundesliga team a south american team how their fans all get together here in los angeles the wee hours of the morning cram themselves into some pub with a pint in their hand and cheer on a team that's thousands of miles away that they bleed the colors of and i can't wait until the lafc Bayern, the lafc london the lafc buenos aires sgs are popping off and we get to see watch parties going around the world from diehard supporters who hope that one day they could make the trek to los angeles and go to the cathedral of the black and gold and get to bask in the glory of seeing their favorite lafc players right there in front of them when that global status hits then that's that's the next step i would like to see for lafc because right now North America, we're already it. We are we are the ticket in North American soccer right now. I'd like to see that dynasty continue and continue to the point where those those fans are piling into pubs at four o'clock in the morning in Saudi Arabia. Well, maybe not Saudi Arabia, but four o'clock in the morning in London to go and check out an LAFC match. I'd love to see Christian. Yeah, short term, or at least in the short amount of time, like we've lived long enough to become the villain. Like now we're the bad guys. Right before we're the aspirational new team. Now we're with a big bad team that we want to go and show and give us, you know, their A game. In the next handful of years, I think we have a roster to compete and probably get another star and hopefully CCL. So like I want that because with expectations and with victories come credibility. And then you become, you know, entrenched in being the villain. And then after that, I I I think the things that you both have mentioned, like I think it started, right? We have supporters in South America and Australia and the UK already. So if they can get a more support, you know, around them, I think with more stars and with more championships, that that'll come right. With us being on the headlines, with this derby becoming bigger and bigger, with our stadium becoming bigger and bigger because we can't hold us. I think all those are the things that I, I foresee and are achievable and attainable. And in twenty years, I want my son to be wearing a, a kit with you know five, six, seven, eight, nine stars. That's what I want. What about you, Uncle Rich? I love being in the same conversation as Lakers, Dodgers, Rams. I love it when we hear people say that LAFC is the best live sports experience in our city. That's where my head explodes. That's what we all can collectively be proud of because all of us put in the grind to get us there. When you look at 
when you're at a match and you see that north end and that heart pumping, the 3,000 plus plus people and they're giving it, right? And creating and showing up. And they never know what kid or what Bayern Munich executive or what big music star is in that stadium. And they never know who they impact. They don't. When the 3252 is rocking, they have no idea. Like the impact they're making is incredible on so many people, every single match. Then you're watching Apple TV. Then you're that kid in Europe or in Wales who is just this kid now is like, Dad, take me to LA. I want to see this football match. Like that is what we can all be proud about. And that I just want to keep creating that where we're just you know, we're in that conversation with the most exciting things to do in Los Angeles. Like that's, that's wild. Five, six years ago to even say that we could be in that conversation and we're in it and we're in it. And that, that feels good. Uncle Rich, you've been very, very generous with your time this evening. We are sincerely appreciative. We do just have one final question for you. It's a question we ask every guest on the show and you might've seen this one coming, but Uncle Rich, what does shoulder to shoulder mean to you, sir? Shoulder to shoulder is the opportunity we all have to create a legacy in Los Angeles. And if we stay shoulder to shoulder, it's right in front of us. And we talk about this future of LAFC, it's right in front of us. We need to stay humble, all of us, in all of our areas. Uh, but it's okay to have a pulse, but we need to stay humble. But yeah, we stick, we stay shoulder to shoulder and we stay humble. The city is ours. It already felt like that 24 hours ago. It felt that way. And it's true. And enough people are saying it. It's just true. And that's a beautiful thing. And it all happened because we're shoulder to shoulder. Well, speaking of humility, we'd like to thank... Some people say Gensler was the architect that built our cathedral. Uh, but I'm going to disagree. I think there's uh, about 22,000 architects. But one person had to be the mediator the man to bring it all together, the glue, the mortar that holds each brick. And that, folks, has been our guest today, none other than LAFC's chief brand officer, Mr. Rich Orozco. Please follow at LAFC Rich. Retweet all his fun, quirky things that he likes to throw Carson's way as well, too. Love to see you guys start popping off in those comments for Uncle Rich as well, too. Sir, we sincerely appreciate not only you coming on the show today, but everything you have done for each and every person that calls the bank home that wears that black and gold wherever they may be in this world, they owe you a thank you. And if this man ever buys a drink again in this town, it will be a shameful act. And I will say that first and foremost right here. So thank you, LAFC Rich. Folks, we are going to take a short break, and we will be right back with today's opponent correspondent. Hey, it's Kevin Frazier from Entertainment Tonight. And listen, I am an LAFC super fan. So I always make sure I download and listen to Shoulder to Shoulder podcasts. They keep me updated. But more importantly, I get to listen to these dudes' opinions about the team I love the most. Keep doing your thing, guys. All right. We are back with this week's opponent correspondent. We are welcoming back Tim Sullivan, who is the one of the hosts of Club and Country covering Nashville SC, and he is also the president of the North American Soccer Reporters. You can give them a follow at Club Country USA and at Soccer Reporters for everything Nashville SC and anything that has to do with the North American Soccer Reporters that covers a wide variety of every soccer 
iteration here in the United States and Canada, along with the national team. So Tim, welcome back. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So it's been a bit of a expected change in this offseason. We had Nashville visiting the Western Conference for a very brief period in time. (laughs) Now due to St. Louis SC coming into the West, Nashville has now then shifted back into the East where there is the formidable rivalries and such. So talk to us a little bit about that change. Uh, Were you looking forward to coming back into the East and having a little bit more familiar territory? And uh, how are you guys feeling about currently sitting in sixth right now? Yeah, the move to the East, uh, I don't think the the difference in the the specific opponents is that big of a deal, but the travel last year was insane. I, I think it was the most any team had ever traveled, and that even includes like Vancouver, which in the past has had to go to, you know, Orlando and all those sorts of things. So it was a, a strenuous travel schedule, which I think uh, was difficult for the team. I don't really think it uh, after that first eight game uh, stretch on the road to start the year, it really hurt their performance that much. Uh, but from a kind of emotional and, and and physical perspective, it kind of wore them down over the course of the year. Um, I do think that um, moving to the East does reunite Nashville with some some of their more historical rivals, like um, FC Cincinnati is one that dates back to the USL days. Uh, Atlanta United is an obvious uh, geographic opponent. So it is something that that makes a little bit more sense. And, um, you know, as the league continues to grow, <laughs> it'll be interesting to see exactly how often games like this one against LAFC are actually going to end up happening. So uh, we'll see. But for, for now, I think Nashville SC fans are, are happy to be back in the East for sure. So let's talk about the offseason. Outgoing players is always an interesting topic. Right now, two more key players that have been lost off the roster is Dave Romney for a $500,000 game deal and uh, forward Aki Loba, who went on loan to Mazatlan FC with the option to buy. But all signs kind of point to him not coming back, mm-hmm. whether Mazatlan FC choose to buy or what have you. So talk yeah. to us a little bit about those two players and uh, the, the spots left open. Yeah, Romney is a guy who was the minutes leader for field players for this club for a long time. He didn't miss a minute in the inaugural season and until uh, the, like, I think final couple games of the 2021 season, he had played every single competitive minute for the club at center back. He was somebody that was, that was pretty popular, but I think over the course of the 2022 season, Nashville eventually kind of felt like his form wasn't quite slipping, but um, he felt due for a raise and he got a big raise by being traded to the New England Revolution. So Nashville kind of um, felt like they could they could, you know, not lose too much uh, in, in terms of their their value per dollar by getting rid of him, even though he was a talented and popular player in Nashville. Um, Loba came in as a designated player uh, in uh, September of the 2021 season, and uh, it, it just it just never really worked here. He. Uh, it took him a while to get onto the pitch. Um, he had fitness issues that first season, and then it didn't really seem to be cured in, in any sense last year. So uh, Nashville, you know, he's on a designated player contract, so they tried to at least get him somewhere where he could get minutes. Um, he was getting minutes from Mazatlan. Unfortunately, he he had surgery just a couple of weeks ago. Um, Nashville really didn't have any plans of, of ever really bringing him back from that loan, whether that was because Mazatlan exercised the purchase option or he was going to end up um, having his contract terminated so he could sign elsewhere, you know, whatever the case may be, whether they could get uh, some some transfer dollars for selling his his contract. But it didn't seem like he was going to come back. Um, you know, it, it hurts in that they are eating a designated player spot until he is permanently transferred somewhere. 
Um, so that hurts. But the the specifics of losing that player, unfortunately, he never really found his footing in Nashville. So uh, it doesn't really hurt the team that much that he's that he's no longer here. Yeah, it kind of has remembrance of the Diego Rossi transfer when he went to Fenerbahce and he was still on the designated player and his original transfer was a loan deal with the option to buy and uh, mm-hmm. We were kind of landlocked when it came to that designated player position. So, yeah, it's it's definitely a handcuffing uh, situation until it can get worked out. And that's kind of one of the things that you have to worry about with this league and, and the limits of having these marquee players. But we'll talk a little bit about the incoming players. There is the defender, Nick Depay, who we know well here at LAFC, who is mm-hmm. coming from the LA Galaxy. Midfielder, Jan Grey Goose, who came on a free, who recently played for San Jose in Minnesota over the last few years. And then also forward, Fafa Pico, who came from the Houston Dynamo on a game deal. So talk to us a little bit about those three players and how they've integrated themselves into the uh, system. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, Depew got hurt in preseason and and is going to be out for the whole year. He had surgery a couple weeks ago, um, had a had a lower body injury. Um, I believe it was ankle surgery that he ended up having. It was like kind of an ankle Achilles sort of deal. So unfortunately, he was going to be the guy that was kind of the 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 uh, dollar store version of Dave Romney and replacing him. So unfortunately he's he's going to be missed because Nashville doesn't have a lot of center back depth after selling Romney and after losing to uh, to injury so um that one kind of hurts and Greg Goose is a weird one he came in um just a couple of weeks ago uh he was uh training with the club for like a week and a half as kind of a trialist and at the, at the end of that trial he you know earned his contract with the club and he's played I believe um as a substitute in all of the games since he signed so he's a guy that uh played as an attacking midfielder even a winger sometimes in his previous stops in the club um with Minnesota United and with um San Jose I believe it was that he came from most recently but um he has played kind of as a, as a holding midfielder so far but one that's maybe a little bit more uh, progressive with his passing than what Nashville gets out of, say, Anibal Godoy or Dax McCarty. Um, so it, it is a situation where they're getting a little bit more offense from a position that is not typically regarded as one of the attacking positions. I think as he gets more integrated, we'll see if he can continue doing more of that and provide enough in attack that um, Nashville, uh, this is a team that needs to step up its attack. It has not been very prolific so far this year. Um, can really get more out of him. Um, Pico is the guy that, has had the biggest impact um, in terms of new players to this club. Uh, he's started, I believe, every game so far on one of the wings. Um, he's primarily played on the left or on the right wing, excuse me, a right-footed right winger. Um, he's a guy who who absolutely loves to get in behind, and Nashville um, absolutely loves to play the long ball. So, so it's kind of a match made in heaven. Um, he hasn't quite had the impact on the score sheet. Um, most of Nashville's attack has come um, from the other winger, Jacob Schaffelberg, who arrived at the end of last year. And of course, Hani Mukhtar just kind of doing stuff solo. But um, Pico has has impacted what the opponent is able to do in terms of defensively. So he's a guy that has really um, pushed the back line back and, and has had an impact on this club. And I think it's only a matter of time before that really starts to show up on the on the scoreboard too. Let's talk about some recent form and results right now, currently sitting in sixth place in the Eastern Conference. You've got three wins, two ties and three losses. And overall, this is going to be the third time LAFC has played Nashville last year being the time the when they were in the West. That was the very first time and each team took a victory. So talk to us about where you're at sitting in sixth place. You know, in recent victories, at the end of last month, you had two losses back to back, two tough one nil losses. But this month, you know, you got a win draw and a loss, most recently with a loss against New York. Talk to us about your form coming into this match, where you're sitting and how you guys mm-hmm. are, you know, 
jiving right now. Yeah, I alluded to it a minute ago. I think the overarching story so far has been that the attack hasn't really come together yet. Like I mentioned about Pico, there are some signs that he's going to be able to be a really productive player, but it hasn't really happened yet. Um, Mukhtar has has been involved in almost every goal that this club has scored. I believe he's uh, scored uh, just once, but he's assisted half of the other ones so far already. Um, but uh, the the loss at New York City is something that fans were really upset about. I think when you go to New York City FC and you're you're playing on one of their baseball fields, it was it was at the Mets City Field this this past weekend. Um, it is it is tough to do. That is always a, a club that plays their home pitch well. To lose 2-1 there, which is actually the first time this season in a Nashville game that both teams had scored. Um, every other game had been a shutout or uh, both teams had been shut out in, in a draw. So it's a situation where uh, it's it's the fact that Nashville hasn't looked great and then played that game that has fans more upset about the result than if it had just happened in a vacuum. Um, the, the draw against Toronto FC was one that uh, was pretty disappointing because TFC had had a pretty poor defense pretty much all year. Um, obviously, under Bob Bradley, they're a team that can come in and, and kind of bunker down and, and do what they need to do to escape with the result. But Nashville uh, was bitten by their inability to kind of break down that sort of thing. And that's what um, Nashville SC fans have been bemoaning for, <laughs> for uh, the entire MLS existence of this club. So I think sitting in sixth is is absolutely fair with how this team has performed so far this year. It's disappointing in terms of what the expectations were. Even though this club didn't have a ton of roster turnover in the offseason, the hope was that healthier season um, for the club, which unfortunately so far they've only gotten a few minutes out of Randall Layal, one of their um, TAM players who is who has been a pretty important part of the attack. And as he comes back, which will not be this weekend, it won't be until next week, uh, he'll be able to provide a little bit of that spark. But so far, a club that has often had trouble scoring is continuing to do that. So fans are a little bit down on the club, but it is one that, uh, you know, a really good result in, in any game. And and I think, honestly, any results against LAFC this weekend will probably be considered a really good result, given the way LAFC has been playing so far this year. Um, it can really kind of change the narrative in a hurry if this club really starts to click, particularly in the attack. So, you know, seeing that we've played you guys recently as last season and, you know, there's some familiarity with uh, the U.S. men's national team players like mm-hmm. Walker Zimmerman, Sha- Shaq Moore, of course, obviously the reigning MLS MVP, Haney Mukhtar. But talk to us about some of the more role players that we w- want to keep an eye on. Uh, and what are some of the key matchups that you're looking forward to in this weekend uh, if Nashville were to try and take a result? Yeah, the uh, the storyline so far this year has been about the strikers because they haven't scored um, one of the starting strikers. They they kind of rotate between two, CJ Sapong. Obviously, longtime uh, veteran MLS player. Teal Bunbury, also kind of a, a veteran MLS player as well. But Sapong hasn't scored since last May 21st. So it's a situation where a guy who's starting uh, the majority of games hasn't found the back of the net. And now he's doing other things for this club. But I think when you go out there and you're uh, the striker on, on a team, you're expected to do a little bit more than go out and do the other stuff you're expected to score. So he's one to keep an eye on. I I have really gotten the vibe that if he breaks his his kind of scoreless streak here, he'll get on a little bit of a run. Um, there's a there's a thing the the guys on extra time talk about it all the time. Every other year he scores double double digit goals, and he did not score double digit goals last year, so he might be due this year. But um, the the important parts of this team that are really going to have to show up and play 
if if Nashville's to get a result, are the goalkeeper Joe Willis. And I think LAFC fans might have nightmares about about the about the decision day match last year where he saved a, a penalty among his 14 Man saves. stood so on his head. He absolutely did. He absolutely did. So I think, yeah, fans are absolutely uh um, you know, he's he has been a little bit hot and cold over the course of his Nashville career, but he's he's on a heater so far this year for the most part. I'm kind of carrying over that form from the decision day uh, win over LAFC. And then um, beyond him, it's the central midfielders. And for the most part this year, uh, the starters have been Anibal Godoy and Sean Davis. Um, both are guys that um, are known for their defensive acumen and, and maybe a little bit less in the attack. And that's something that, like I mentioned when we were talking about Grey Goose, is that that's what this club um, is kind of built around. They're built around making sure they're solid at the back, but they're also unfortunately built around not having quite enough an attack to, to complement it. Um, and that's what, that's where Grey Goose I think can make it a, a difference. And uh, Dax McCarty also is one who is uh, a rotation player in that central midfield. He was the club's captain for the first three years. Um, he's seated the armband to Walker Zimmerman um, this year, but he's a little bit more progressive of a central midfielder. And I think if, if Nashville wants to try and play, Against LAFC, he's the guy that makes more sense. Um, I think when you look at what LAFC has been able to do to basically everybody this year, Nashville, uh, they don't try to bunker at home and, and escape with a result, but it might be what they end up having to to feel like they do in order to just get something out of the game this weekend um, because of the form that LAFC is in. So um, how those central midfielders are able to to kind of slow down what the the midfield three from LAFC can provide. And then, and then, and then it's Willis stopping whatever shots come at him. And he, he's done a great job of it this year. He obviously did a great job of it uh, at, at bank of California stadium, um, RIP to that name uh, last, last decision day. So um, those are, those are the guys that I think are going to be the real keys. And then of course, Mukhtar, you mentioned, you know, nobody needs an introduction to him, but he's going to be the guy who, who has a, a huge impact on, on what this club is able to do and actually scoring and, and putting the ball in the back of the net. Over under on Denny Buwanga getting the MLS MVP should form continue the way he is from Henny Mukhtar. I mean, I think Buwanga has got to be the favorite right now, right? Right. <laughs> I, I don't think, I don't think there's a whole lot of doubt about it. Maybe, maybe Tiago Almada from, from uh, Atlanta United, but um, you know, Nashville fans are hoping that Mukhtar, while he has, he's been playing well, he just hasn't been scoring a ton. I think Nashville fans are expecting him to, to break out of his shell a little bit. It took him, I think, six or seven games last year to finally score. And obviously he won the Golden Boot and he won the MVP. So, uh, you know, he's he's going to do everything he can to to start to turn that narrative against Boanga this weekend for sure. Absolutely. It's definitely going to be uh, an electric match that I'm really looking forward to. I mean, it, like you said, Haney Mukhtar had a little bit of a slow start last season and look at everything that he was still able mm -hmm. to accomplish. So th there is no point in solidifying any pick as of right now. There's still a whole lot of season left to play. We'll wrap things up right here. Just real fast. Let, let's hear what your predictions are going to be for this upcoming weekend and and where are you thinking Nashville is going to be at the end of the year? Uh, I'll take them in reverse order. I think Nashville is going to be in the playoffs. I don't think they're going to be hosting a home playoff game, which is going to be a disappointment when they were right on the verge of that last year, fell short on tiebreakers uh, to Carson, a team that you guys know pretty well. So, um, in, in terms of, of what to expect this weekend, I I would be pleasantly surprised if Nashville SC scores. It really is a matter of of if they can keep LAFC off the board. And, uh, you know, it's, I think, either a 1-0 a, a or a 0-0. Zero, zero. I, I think LAFC is is the far more likely of the two teams to to get that 1-0 result for sure. Absolutely. I You know, I'm really going to be looking for it. You know, I like when 
as a U.S. men's national team supporter, I like watching mm-hmm. when the members that are on the team currently and they get to play each other, you know, mm-hmm. seeing, you know, four of them, Aaron Long, Shaq Moore, Walker Zerman, and Kellen Acosta, seeing all four of them interact together and how it's going to play out. Like, I, I think that these are some of the more exciting side stories that that can also uh, drive a match. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that. Again, we've had Tim Sullivan, who has been our opponent correspondent. Again, you can follow his coverage of Nashville SC at four club and country over at club country usa and again he is the president of the north american soccer reporters where we do voting on a weekly basis for the mvp and that vote carries over into the actual mls results for the most valuable player that week so again thank you very much tim we appreciate you having on we look forward to talking to you again when we play nashville in the future and we will be right back after this short break with our last segment This is Nick Cajola, starting trumpet player for LAFC, and you are listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. Do it for LA. All right, gentlemen, we are all geared up for our match versus Nashville. It's time to put your predictions where your podcast is. Gentlemen, what are your score predictions for LAFC visiting Nashville? I think it's going to be a draw, 2-2, and I want minimum energy expended. I want B team out there because I'm trying to save our players' legs because they look gassed at the end of that LAFC Galaxy game. So that's what I want, and that's what I predict is going to happen. Yeah, I, I definitely think that we're going to see a, a more of a rotated roster, especially with Philadelphia in the first leg of the Conca Champions League coming up. So I think with that, it'll be a, a closer affair. But I still think LAFC is going to come out with the victory. I think uh, 2-1, 2-1 victory is uh, what I'm predicting. I am going to firmly agree with Chris, except I'm going to go ahead and give us a clean sheet. I think it's going to be 2 nothing to the black and gold shutdown game. We went on a couple counters. I completely agree. B squad, all eyes on Philadelphia. At the end of the day, this game matters only in statistics. It's not in the West. I could really care less about the result. If we sent the LAFC 2 squad out there and we got spanked, I'd be perfectly fine with it with all eyes on the city of brotherly love. Gentlemen, unless you got anything else for us, that'll call it a show for today. We'd like to thank none other than LAFC legend Rich Orozco, Chief Brand Officer for LAFC, for joining us as our guest this week. And a huge shout out to Tim Sullivan from Club and Country covering Nashville and the president of the North American Soccer Reporters for joining us as our opcore. As always, folks, my name is Jonathan Reimer, Christopher Sines, Christian Aparicio, and the legend sound engineer Wilton. All thank you for listening to today's show. Take us home, sticks. Up to show up together, this our culture. Feel the force of a supernova. Stay flying that FC dorsum. Hey, shopping down to Nikki's Koreatown Liddy. Cape us so mommy, about to drop her fifth. They want me to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.